So we're uh, up to our third uh, message in this series through Exodus. Uh, we've uh, heard of uh, Moses uh, wrestling, arguing with the Lord about whether he should be the one to lead the people out of Israel. Is that fair? Okay. And uh, the Lord was very clear, you're the one that I'm sending and so now we see him return to Egypt uh, to begin to fulfil the task that the Lord has given him. As uh, Moses and his family return to Egypt, now that the, the Pharaoh who saw his blood is dead, it's actually a foreshadowing of another event, a similar event, when Joseph and Mary and Jesus returned from Egypt to Israel after the death of King Herod, who tried to kill all the male children of the region. The wording here is very similar to the wording that Matthew uses in Matthew chapter 2. So uh, this should again give us a heads up that uh, as we look at this next chapter in Moses' life, we won't just see Moses, we'll see Jesus. So we will be points. Now this is uh, 24 and 26 of chapter 4 is one of those uh, short, obscure passages that we might read and ask what is this all about? How on earth does this fit into the story? We might uh, have some questions of that passage such as why, why did the Lord try to kill Moses? especially after he'd just been so insistent that Moses is the one that he's chosen to take the Israelites out of Egypt. We might say, why this bizarre ritual of touching his feet with his son's foreskin and why is it that that saved his life? And we might say, well, this stern bridegroom of blood, what on earth does that mean? Tony mentions uh, what some commentators um, have suggested that uh, this is God's anger at Moses because he hadn't followed God's requirements of having his son circumcised. You shall be circumcised in the flesh of your foreskins, and it shall be a sign of the covenant between me and you. Any uncircumcised male who is not circumcised in the flesh of his foreskin shall be cut off from his people. He has broken my covenant. The point of the cut of the, uh, the ritual of circumcision was that the, the covenant was established through the shedding of blood and through the cutting of flesh. Uh, you may remember the story of uh, Abraham, the Lord put Abraham to sleep after Abraham had cut the animal carcasses in two and the Lord himself passed between the animal car carcasses. 
Uh, so there was the cutting of flesh and the shedding of blood. And so it was appropriate that the, the sign of circumcision uh, reflected this nature of the covenant. Circumcision was also something permanent. It was irreversible, as irreversible as God's commitment to his covenant. Circumcision was an outward sign of an inward work of covenant grace, reminding the person who was circumcised that they lived by faith in the God who had justified them, who had called them his own. It also involved the shedding of one's own blood. It was a reminder to the person that because of their sin, they actually deserve to die. But by God's grace, this judgment has been turned aside and has fallen upon another. In the Old Testament, it was the Old Testament, the animal sacrifices, which prefigured uh, Jesus. God's wrath turned aside from me and another person's blood was shed in my place and so I was saved. Why had Moses circumcised his son? We don't know. Maybe it was because his wife was a Midianite. But I think there's more happening here than the Lord being angry at Moses for not having circumcised his son. If it was as simple as saying that Moses needed to have his son circumcised, the Lord could have just commanded Moses, make sure your sons are circumcised. What I think is happening here is that the Lord is bringing home to Moses in a kind of enacted parable what he had just told him in verses 21-23. He said, The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all of the miracles that I have put in your power, but I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. I have that up there somewhere. Um, everything's te- technologically mixed up today, so it was going to be up there. So this is, I believe, a parable, an actual enacted parable of these words. The Lord's son, Egypt, uh, Israel, is in Egypt and his life is at risk of being wiped out, brought to an end through their suffering. So in this enacted parable, Moses represents Israel. We know that Israel will ultimately be saved when the Lord does strike down not only the firstborn son of Pharaoh, but the firstborn son of every family in Egypt on the night of Passover, which will come to in a couple of weeks. We'll also see that the firstborn sons of the Israelite families were saved on that night through the shedding of blood, the blood of the Passover. So Moses' son 
is a picture of that salvation which comes through the shedding of blood. The land's blood shed for the Israelites firstborn and painted on the door frame of their houses would mean that the Lord would pass over their homes. He would let them alone as he does here now with Moses. I imagine that this experience would have permanently stayed with Zipporah, Moses' wife, for the rest of her life. The day that she had to shed the blood of her son in order to not only save Moses' life, but by saving him, save their whole family, and we could save, by saving Moses, saving all of Israel. So Moses was truly her bridegroom of blood, a reminder that salvation will only come through this shedding of blood of another person on our behalf. We're used to thinking of Israel as being like a bride in her relationship with God. But in this enacted parable, the imagery is different. Israel is the bridegroom of blood. Anyone who wants to be a member of this covenant community can only come in through the shed blood of the covenant signified by circumcision. The same is true for Christ and the church. Just as the blood shed at circumcision marked a person's inclusion into Israel and the, the blood shed at the sacrificial altar marked the forgiveness of their sins. So now the shed blood of Christ, the firstborn son of the Father, gives us entry into the church. Well, Moses and Aaron's first approach to the elders of Israel seems to go well initially. I said last week that the, the signs that Moses was given by God were for the Egyptians, not for the Israelites. And that's still true here, even though they do the signs in front of the Israelites. They're still pointing towards the judgment that will come upon Egypt. These signs are communicating to the Israelites that God is concerned about justice. He's seeing their affliction. He's coming to them. And so they believe. How do we know that their belief was genuine? Well, we're told that they bowed their heads and worshipped. Remember, the, the fruit of doctrine is doxology. When we hear who God is, and when we hear what he has done and what he promises to do, the appropriate human response is worship. That's when the truth of what we hear, that which is in our heads, filters down to our hearts and captures our the initial fruit of true faith is worship. And then out of worship comes action, comes discipleship. I wonder though whether Moses had communicated the full picture. 
or whether what they heard from Moses, they actually only heard some of it. Because these Israelite people, they're, they're a little bit like, if you remember the parable that Jesus told of the various seeds that were sown by the sower. Some of the seeds fell on the rocky ground and Jesus said they're, they're the people who hear the word and receive it with joy but then trials and persecution come and because they have no root, they wither and die. And it seems that this was the case with the Israelites. They, they heard this good news that God had come to them but then hardship came, persecution came and they withered. They all seemed surprised when Pharaoh refused Moses and Aaron's request to let them go. Not only that, but he increased their burden by forcing them to go out and gather their own straw in order to make the bricks. Just as a, a bit of an aside, straw might seem a strange thing to put in bricks. We'd expect it to make the bricks weaker. In fact, straw was used in brick making because as the straw began to decompose within the, the wet mud of the bricks, it released chemicals that actually strengthened the bonds between the clay particles. So straw made the bricks stronger. Now I could say at this point, well there's a parable in itself, the things that we think will make us weak actually make us strong, but that's not actually the point of this passage. I wasn't sure if I should even say that, because I thought there'll probably be someone who can take that and, and run with us. That's an example of how we might actually miss the point of a Bible passage, when we're just looking for little morsels of uh, wisdom or moralism or quaint sayings that, that make us focus more on ourselves than on what God is doing. And what's happening here is something that God is doing. It's not merely an unfortunate turn of events that God now has to try and find a solution to, something he didn't foresee that Pharaoh was put this extra burden on people. Remember he had said clearly, I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. We'll see uh, later in Proverbs Sorry, our slide was really mixed up. I don't know what's happened there. Uh, we'll see later in Proverbs 21, the king's heart is a stream of water in the hand of the Lord. He turns it wherever he will. Who decided that this first attempt to free the people would be unsuccessful? Was it Pharaoh who made that decision? In fact, it wasn't actually unsuccessful. It had actually achieved the purpose that the Lord had already decided it would achieve. Hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he would refuse to let them go. Why? Because the Lord's aim was that when a 
eventually the Israelites do leave Egypt, it would be by a great display of the Lord's power and majesty. When it does finally happen, there will be no doubt for the Israelites and for the Egyptians that the Lord is the only true and sovereign God. Now, did God have the right to override Pharaoh's free will by hardening his heart and by determining in advance what his response would be to Moses? Well, that's actually something we'll look at a bit more closely next week. But for the moment, we need to see that God had not only predicted the outcome of this first approach, he'd already decided how it was going to play out. But there's actually a big issue at stake in this passage. And it's summed up in that question from Moses, Why, O Lord, have you done evil? this people? Why did you ever send me? Moses had done what the Lord had commanded. He'd spoken to the elders of Israel. He'd got them on board. They'd believed. They'd worshipped. He'd gone to Pharaoh as commanded and told him to let the people go. Surely if we do all that God has commanded, things will work out, won't they? For the experience of the biblical characters, not just Moses, but most of the people in the Bible, and our own experience tells us that that's not necessarily the case. A repeated echo throughout the scriptures is why do the righteous suffer? And why do the wicked prosper? I feel like this is a, a topic that comes up quite a bit over the, over the years, but that's because it, it's keep, it keeps being raised by the Scriptures. And so as we do our series of teaching through various books of the Scriptures, we're going to keep encountering this question, whether we're in the Old Testament or the New Testament. Why, why do those who do God's will suffer? All the world's religions try to provide an answer to that question, the question of suffering. Eastern religions put it down to karma, this kind of innate but impersonal force of justice in which the universe or God will bring about some kind of balance of good and evil. Islam tells us that it's all a test from Allah designed to make us submit. Some groups within Christendom would say that suffering is all the work of the devil, that God has nothing to do with it. And of course there's the religion of secular humanism. That tells us that actually there is no point or purpose in suffering apart from what we might choose to put on ourselves. I think all of those are easy options because they, they try to solve the dilemma either by removing God from the picture or by making God impersonal or distant. 
But the Bible forces us to wrestle with suffering in a way that's more intense, more personal and more painful. Because we're told that God is not only real, but he's personal. He's not only personal, but he's both loving and just. And he's not only loving and just, but he is the God who sees and hears and knows our situation. And not only does he see and hear and know, but he actually says in the words of our passage, I have come down to deliver them. In other words, he promises to act when there's suffering and injustice. That means that Moses' question, O Lord, why have you done evil to this people? is exactly the right question to ask. On one level, Moses had his theology right. He knew the Lord to be sovereign, all-seeing, all-powerful, just, loving, compassionate. It was God who had initiated contact with Moses. It was God who had patiently argued with Moses so that he could see that he is the one that should go. So it's a perfectly natural and right question to ask. Why, at least from a human perspective, has God seemed to act in a way that's contrary to his own character? We heard earlier in the service from Proverbs so you will walk in the way of the good and keep to the path of the righteous. For the upright will inhabit the land, those with integrity will remain in it. But the wicked will be cut off from the land, and the treacherous will be rooted out of it. If the upright will inherit the land, and the wicked will be cut off, then what is God doing when the complete opposite happens? This is a question God wants us to ask. It's why the question comes up again and again in the Bible. From, from the lips, not of those who are sitting around doing a bit of casual philosophy. It's from the lips of those who both know this God and are right in the depths of suffering. What we're supposed to see is where this repeated question ultimately culminates. It culminates in the cry, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? From the lips of Jesus on the cross. Jesus is the one man who at every point has done everything that the Lord has commanded him. At every point, he walked in paths of righteousness. At no point did he ever object or question the Father's plan, even though he knew it would take him to the cross. Yet there on the cross we see the Holy and Righteous One despised and rejected, smitten and afflicted by God. 
But notice that his cry is not a statement. He doesn't say, God, you have forsaken me. He quotes Psalm 22 and phrases it as a question. And in doing so, he is asking this question on behalf of every single human being who has ever asked it themselves. And especially is crying out that question on behalf of all of God's people who know God's good character but are blindsided by pain or suffering or injustice. Because he asks that on our behalf, we can know that in Jesus Christ God has acted as he promised. Just not in the way that we might have expected. God has come to walk with us through the valley of the shadow of death, not as a distant observer, but as a participant in the darkness of suffering and death, in order that we might be participants with him in his resurrection life. That's what's behind the Lord's words, I have come down to deliver them. He's not only going to deliver them, he has come down, he has come to walk with them through the deliverance. Unlike all the so-called gods of the nations, the Lord isn't limited by location or geography. He doesn't need to travel from heaven to earth before he can act. So this coming down isn't an expression of location, it's an expression of relationship. And we see this in the verses that follow in chapter 6. God is going to make himself known to Israel in a way that he didn't make himself known to Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. He said to Moses, I didn't make myself known by the name Yahweh to these men. Well, the patriarchs, they certainly knew the name Yahweh. They used it themselves. They used the, the Lord. But if you ask them, what is the significance of the name, the Lord? They would have answered, it means that he is God Almighty, or El Shaddai. A bit like a friend of the man that I mentioned last week who summed up his view of God as the Creator. They would also say this one, who is God Almighty, has promised to, to give us this land in which we live in as nomads. Now the Lord is wanting Moses to recall Genesis 17 here. When Abraham was, sorry, Abram was 99 years old, the Lord appeared to Abram and said to him, I am, I am God Almighty, El Shaddai. Walk before me and be blameless, that I may make my covenant between me and you and may multiply you greatly. Then Abram fell on his face and God said to him, Behold, my covenant is with you and you shall be the father of a multitude of nations. This is the point where the Lord 
changes Abram's and Sarai's names to Abraham and Sarah. And notably, where he then goes on to institute the sign of circumcision, as we saw earlier. So Abram certainly knew the Lord as Almighty God, who made promises about his offspring, about the land, about blessings, yet he never saw that those promises come to fruition in his own lifetime. He had to live by faith in something that he couldn't see, but only that which he could hope for. But now, the name Yahweh, the Lord, is going to mean so much more for these children of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. See what he says in verse 7. I will take you to be my people and I will be your God and you shall know that I am the Lord your God who has brought you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. This is the first time in the Bible where this full phrase I am the Lord your God appears. Because of what he is about to do the Israelites will be able to answer the question what is the significance of the name of your God Yahweh not just with God Almighty who made promises but they will be able to say He is the Lord, our God. We are his people who he brought out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. The Lord, he's the God who has come to us, who walks with us, who dwells with us, even in the darkest places, when we're faced with the greatest dangers. They will be able to say the Lord, he is Here's the God who made promises to our ancestors and now we've seen that he has remained faithful to those promises even in times when we thought he wasn't. I hope that if someone asks you who is God that you'll be able to say a lot more than simply he's the creator or he is the Almighty God. Because if God's revelation to the Israelites through Moses surpassed that of what he gave to Abraham, so much more does his revelation of himself to us in Jesus Christ surpass what was made known even to Moses and the Israelites. When someone asks us who is God, We can say, the Lord our God is the God and Father of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in Jesus Christ, we see his glory perfectly displayed. This Father planned from eternity in love to act powerfully in his saving actions with the goal of adopting me into his family to make me a son and an heir. This Lord our God is also the Word made flesh, the Son of the Father, who 
loved me to such an extent that he took me to himself and laid down his life for me, bearing the judgments I deserve, and giving me through his resurrection life the certainty of eternal life. And this Lord our God is also the Spirit of the Father and the Son. The Spirit who has poured out the love of the Father into my heart by his presence with me. The Spirit who enables me to cry out, Abba, Father, and Jesus is Lord. This Spirit who is now the deposit guaranteeing my inheritance until I see Jesus face to face. Not in the promised land, but in the new creation. Salvation isn't just merely being rescued from our troubles and from our sin. We are saved not just from these things, but we are saved to God. The Israelites would come out of Egypt and go into the promised land, but more importantly, they would know the Lord as their God. They would know themselves as his people because he came down and delivered them. Now, we shouldn't overlook Moses' words in verse 12. Behold, the people of Israel have not listened to me. How then shall Pharaoh listen to me? For I am uncircumcised lips. Remember, Moses' previous objections to going were based on matters of ability or suitability. Here, he uses this term, uncircumcised lips. This is no coincidence, given that our passage began with that confronting incident of the circumcision of Moses' son. And it continues with the reinforcement of God's covenant made with Abraham with that sign of circumcision. Remember what was to happen to an uncircumcised person? We were told, he shall be cut off from his people. He's broken the covenant. Moses, by saying those words, has now come to the perfect place for him to be used by the Lord. He's realised that it's not his inability that needs to be dealt with, but his unworthiness. The mouth speaks out of what's stored up in the heart. To confess that he has uncircumcised lips is to confess that he has an uncircumcised heart. Even if his body bore the external marks of circumcision. The biggest barrier to joyful obedience isn't inadequacy, it's sinfulness. The moment that we think that we in and of ourselves are worthy of serving the Lord, we immediately disqualify ourselves. God qualifies people for his service not by giving them skills or making them a better person, but by purifying purifying their hearts, by cleansing their hands, by circumcising their lips. 
So now in this place of complete inadequacy and unworthiness, the Israelites have lost faith in him. Pharaoh is before him with a hard heart, refusing to let the people go. Moses has now become the perfect instrument through whom the Lord will display his glory because people will no longer be looking at Moses. They'll be looking at the Lord and what he's doing. Let's pray.